Father, we come to you now asking and pleading for you to speak through your word to us. We are so grateful and thank you, thankful that you are not silent when it comes to your people and that your word is sharp and powerful and good for us to consume this morning. So we pray that you would lift up your son in glory that we might see him as he truly is, holy and eternal and good, saving those who call on him and his lordship. And so now I pray that you would keep me from error, that you would encourage all of us through your word and that we might see you as you truly are, glorious and amazing. We pray this in the name of your son Jesus. Amen. Well, if you have a copy of God's Word, I want to encourage you to turn to the book of Colossians in chapter 1. I'll be in verses 15 through 20. If you are joining us, maybe for the first time this morning, what we do when, we, uh, when churches typically have sermons, the way that we have sermons is that we let the Word of God speak for itself. So we're on the Word's timetable and in the Word's framework. So we're just going through books of the Bible bit by bit that's kind of in the culture here at this church. So we would encourage you, if you have a Bible, to open it. And if you ever get bored or don't want to look at me, just look at the text itself. And if you didn't bring a Bible with you, there's a Bible hopefully in one of the chair backs. Uh, there are a couple per row. Just take one of those Bibles, open it up to the book of Colossians. Use the table of contents. That's totally fine. We all do it. And if you don't have a Bible at all, take one of those home with you. We'd love for you to have that. But I'll be in Colossians, the book of Colossians, chapter 1 beginning in verse 15. The word of the Lord says this to us this morning. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. I heard an illustration in opening up this text where I want you to imagine yourself going to a bookstore a Christian bookstore in the year 60 A.D. You walk into this bookstore and you're immediately struck by the smells inside this bookstore. You know, the sweet Christian aroma. They call it potpourri. And you see trinkets and bookmarks and Christmas ornaments and there are all kinds of things that you can purchase and there are all kinds of books that tell you all kinds of things just waiting for you to purchase. But you are dead set on finding a book that's about Jesus. And you look, and you look, and you look, and there are lots of things that are about Jesus, but you're wanting just a book on Jesus himself. And so you go up to the person at the register and you say, do you have any book that's just on Jesus himself? And he goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Someone asked about that a long time ago. Let me, let me go find it in the back. I have it for you. So he goes from the back and he, and he wipes the dust off the cover and he says, here's a book just about Jesus. That's somewhat of the personality that, that Paul is writing to the church of Colossians about, that, that in the midst of everything, you know, bookmarks are great, Christmas ornaments are wonderful, smelling good is a holy aspiration, you might say. But in the midst of everything, he wants people to have their focus, their lives focus on Jesus himself. 
acknowledging that it is really easy to get distracted by things. Now, some things he would say are good things to be placed in your life, and some things are irreverent or unholy or unrighteous, even though we might convince ourselves that they all need to be in the same room. But what Paul wants this church to do is to walk in in any life situation or to go to bed given any kind of circumstantial day and rest in and then focus on the person of Jesus himself. And how he does this is he prays for the church to not be distracted by anything other than the person of Jesus. And in our context, he doesn't want to leave them with any doubt on exactly who he's talking about. When Paul first met Jesus on the road to Damascus, he did not know at the time who Jesus really was. In fact, he said, who are you, Lord? Not Lord himself, Yahweh, but who are you, this this crushing creature in his own life. And here we see in the book of Colossians that Paul now fully understands who Jesus is. And in fact, he knows who Jesus is in such a way that he can't stop but telling other people about who Jesus is altogether. And when he sees that they might be pursuing things that is unchristlike or not about Christ altogether, he stops everything and he writes them a letter. And so here we have, in our case, one of Paul's letters where he wants you to notice the preeminence or the fully functioning and the fully holy Jesus himself. Seeing these words, I hope that you will be impressed with the fact that Christ Jesus is all-sufficient, that he is preeminent over everything else. He is the only person or only thing who is worthy of our love and adoration and obedience. And you might think, well, yeah, duh, of course he is. But you might have also been tempted like me yesterday to consume yourself with the gods of football. Or maybe this last week to consume yourselves of the tyranny of the urgent. Or maybe you might put off seven minutes in the Bible for whatever you want to do on a daily basis. He wants you to be so convinced that Jesus is so good that you have nothing else to do in all of your life than to orient your heart towards Him and worship Him as He is. This is a counter-assault at those who defame Christ. You know, what's interesting, when you think about, and I'm, I'm guessing that not all of you think about this all the time, but when you think about all the heresies that have gone on in history, so there might be four of you that are like, yeah, that's what I do on Saturdays. I think about heresies all the time. But when you do, let me encourage you, when you think about all the heresies that have gone on In church history, all of them have their center at tearing apart bit by bit, like petal by petal, on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter if it's 200 years ago, 500 years ago, or one afternoon ago. When we start stripping away at the glory of Jesus, we actually don't have Jesus at all. And so Paul wants this church and wants us to walk boldly and confidently into any situation in worshiping Christ. Now, just looking back at a couple of verses before this, you should recall that Jesus is a delivering king. Remember last week how I told you that I don't really know why this happened, but what he does is he shows what Jesus has done for his people and then describes Jesus to his people. Well, what he describes as Jesus doing is Jesus delivered his people from darkness and into light. He claimed that Jesus has a kingdom, that he is the king in this kingdom. And that Jesus even came into this world, the Son of God came into this world to proclaim the truth that He is the King. 
And that everyone who is outside of his kingship or who is against his kingdom is against him and they will not survive the end. And after his resurrection, he claimed that the extent of his rule is over all of heaven and all of earth. So there is nothing out there ever that doesn't ultimately belong to him. And it can either submit itself to him in goodness or it can war against him in unrighteousness. And what he says is, if you war against Jesus, Paul says, you just won't survive. And it's not a good fight worth fighting for. So he delivered his people from darkness and into light, but his kingship and kingdom proclaimed in the book is one of totality. The book of Revelation says that the ruler is the king over all of the earth. And those who are in Christ Jesus are within this good and safe kingdom. And those who persevere to the end will ultimately rule with him even as he now rules and reigns. So what Paul wants to do is he wants people to see that it is Jesus who saves people from their sins. And if he is good enough or glorious enough or salvific enough or kind enough to save people from their own sins, he is also good enough to follow with their whole lives. He says that it is a benefit for us that his blood was shed on the cross for the redemption or the forgiveness of our sins. Matthew 20, verse 28 says that even as the Son of Man came, He didn't do so just to serve, but also to give His life as a ransom for many. And so the King is announced at bringing people from darkness and into His light, and by doing so, their sins are forgiven. So, I hope that you see in this passage that there are three big things to recognize. So I'm now at point one in your outline. There are three big things to recognize, and there are two blanks there in your outline, and I did that intentionally. There are two things under each big thing to recognize, but first, in this passage, where Paul is lifting up this glorious and great canvas of who is Jesus, he answers and hopes that you recognize first that Jesus is the personal and powerful creator. Jesus is the personal creator and powerful creator. He does this first in verse 15 by saying that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now the word image here comes from the Greek signifying an icon, an image, a figure, a likeness of. Jesus is the image of a God who is invisible. John 1 says to us that no man has ever seen God, but Jesus has declared that He is God, and those who see Him know what the Father is and know who the Father is. John 14, as Jesus Himself said, He who has seen Me has seen the Father. As expressed by the writer of Hebrews later on in the New Testament, Jesus is the brightness of God's glory, the the expressed image of His person in Hebrews 1, verse 3. And as Paul wrote to the Corinthians earlier, just historically in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, that Jesus is the image of God. Not made in the image of God. Not in the likeness sort of a God. Not even like a tracing of God like you might have done in elementary school where you might trace, you know, Big Bird or something. That's not what Jesus is. Jesus is God Himself. From these passages, we learn that Jesus accurately and fully expresses the being and perfection of God Himself. So, why this matters to you is by looking at Jesus, as He is revealed in the Word of God, we can see and know the Father who is invisible. So it's personal to us. 
God in His glory manifests Himself in such a way that when we see the Son of God, we see the Father. And how much of a comfort that is when we call out to Him. So he says this, that He is the image of the invisible God, but also in verse 15, verse 15 the firstborn over all creation. Now, concerning the word firstborn, it, it hangs up many people, not inside this faith, but outside of our own faith. It can mean several things, really. The one who was firstborn. So many people think that Jesus was the very first thing to ever be born. That, that He was made first and then things were made out of Him. Some have concluded that, that He was a created being. This is what Jehovah's Witnesses believe. And, and their argument is basically from the extent that they change the very words of God. You know, some of my family members are professing Jehovah's Witnesses or no longer alive, but they profess Jehovah's Witness faith to their death by saying that Jesus is a really good person. And we don't disagree with that. They even say he's the greatest person ever in the world. And we don't, we don't disagree with that either. But they said, isn't it great out of God's kindness that he created Jesus to be our example? And you go, no, that is exactly not the case. Because if we are trusting ourselves in something that is created, then we're not looking at the one who is creating anything altogether. Just like if I trusted in this pulpit for my faith. This was made too, but it's not going to withstand the wrath of God and not deliver me into His righteousness. So when we see the word firstborn, what this is rightly used in Scripture is a rank. So in the Scriptures... To describe one who occupies the rank or the privilege of being the firstborn, the Scriptures use the word firstborn. So used by God in the way to talk about the nation of Israel in Exodus chapter 4. Well, the nation of Israel probably wasn't the only nation that was ever made or wasn't the first nation there, but God looked at the nation of Israel as His firstborn. Now, as a secondborn, I often have a problem with this because I want to be the firstborn. When my mom looks at my sister Allie and takes the light in her being the firstborn, I go, I want that. God gives rank to certain things. This is also used by God in a way to refer to David, King David, who was the youngest of his eight brothers, but God looked at him and declared him to be the firstborn, one of highest rank. So any interpretation of this term must be in harmony with what was taught elsewhere in the Scriptures, and especially about Christ, where when we see that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, we might be tempted to, to see that as like first made, but rather the Scriptures are saying He's the most highly exalted one. He is the one whom all things belong to, and even to the point where it says that all things were made by Him. So how can things be made by Him if He Himself was made altogether? The purpose in using the phrase the firstborn over all creation is to stress that Jesus is preeminent over and in all of creation. He has the rights of one as if he were the firstborn. So everything needs to be under the submission to Jesus as its king. Just as God declared Israel to be his firstborn, just as God declared David as his own firstborn, Jesus is described to us as the firstborn over all creation. So with this, we see that Jesus is a personal God, and Jesus is a king. But Jesus is also known as powerful, or described as powerful to us in this text. Look at verses 16 through 17. This amazing truth concerning Jesus is also confirmed by John's gospel, that he is the creator of all things. 
So, so Paul is saying that he is the creator of all things. John also said the same thing in John 1, verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. The writer of the epistle to the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 said that he is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. From these verses, not only in our text this morning, but also in other texts that were inspired and given to us by God, from these verses we learn that when the world was created, everything came into being with the Son of God as the creating agent. So everything, water, trees, you, all through, the Son of God as the created agent. But also, everything was created for Him. Everything was created for him in right worship. And so as the creator of all things, it only follows that he existed before anything that was created, and he is eternal, which seems to be the idea of verse 17a, that he, before all things, existed eternally and with glory. So in addition to being the creator of all things, as we continue in verse 17, let me bring your attention to what it says. Not only is he the creator of all things, but he's also the sustainer of all things. And in him, all things hold together, it says. In him, all things hold together. That is, in him, all things are kept or held on to. Their existence, their order, all things' arrangements are continued in the present form by Jesus' power. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it says again that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Or maybe put very succinctly in the Westminster Confession of Faith, which was written by a bunch of people, a bunch of pastors like four to five hundred years ago, where they tried to summarize different facets of the Christian faith. When talking about God's providential work in people's lives, they said that God, the great creator of all things, does uphold, direct, dispose and govern all creatures actions and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom power justice goodness and mercy to remind you god the great creator of all things does uphold everything now there are two reasons why I think Paul is writing this. The first reason why is in that time, heresies that were creeping into the church were describing God as really far off. He doesn't care. He's the ant you've never talked to and lives somewhere on the West Coast and doesn't even send you a postcard. Still your aunt, but no one knows about it. That's how they were describing the world in their eyes, that God was far off and doesn't care. But here, Paul is describing that Jesus didn't just create everything, but sustains everything and holds everything together. So I think the second reason why he brings this out is because you and I are so tempted to either think that our problems are too little for God to care about, whether in sin or misery or circumstance, or they are too big for God to take hold of. Cancer wrecks havoc on your body. It's a big deal. And you'll be tempted by Satan to not trust in the one who holds all things together. Your marriage is a wreck. And no one can help you. Your spouse can't help you. You can't help you. No counselor can help you. God can't help you. And Paul is saying, don't listen to anyone who says that. 
Because the God of the universe, who made everything, holds you in his grip as well. Something's happened so terrible in your life that you don't know how you can go on, even to the point of wondering if you should even be alive anymore. You should know that the powerful God of the universe is the personal God of the universe. And he did not make a mistake when he made you. And nothing of his providence is accidental. No molecule is out of his control. R.C. Sproul says that there is not one atom in the universe that God does not declare mine. And he holds it all together. Now many of us think that when we hear God doing things, we imagine someone with a really big megaphone and he says, make water. Or they should get married. And then he kind of just stands back and lets things happen. But what we see in the scripture, that the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-active, personal and powerful God is holding every single thing together. The water that goes off the waterfall in his grip. Your text message with that person in his grip. You wondering, are you going to die alone and is anyone going to care about it? In his grip. The Lord is powerful. The Lord is personal. And Paul is saying that you should recognize this king because it will be all satisfying to your life. Second, so first, recognize the personal, powerful creator. Second, recognize the active and sustaining leader. Really quickly, the head of the body. Jesus is the head of the body of the church. The church is the body of Christ. The the word for church comes from the Greek word ekklesia, meaning a congregation or a assembly made up of people who have been called out. Those called out by the gospel of Christ come into his kingdom in the form of of the great assembly or the great congregation of the Lord's army. There are two ways to look at the church. The first one is the universal church, the body of saved believers throughout the world, throughout time. My dead grandma is a member of God's good church, and that brings me great comfort. But you, individually, are part of the local church where a covenanting, committed congregation of saved Believers gather in one place to bring exaltation to Christ. And in the context of Colossians 1.18, Paul is speaking of the church universal, but he's trying to heighten the idea of the church local by saying that Christ, Jesus, is the head of this body. And as the head, Jesus is over the church in its totality. As we've seen, or as you may have seen in Matthew 28.18, that he has all authority and in heaven and in earth. And he administers that through the glory of his church. How much more so should he hold the rank, or should we hold the rank of the preeminence of Christ when we think about him as the head of our body? He is the one who controls the destiny, not only of those in his church, but also his church altogether. So when you think about the church, do you think about Jesus being the head of it? Now, there are things that physically happen. In the head. You know, what does the head do in your life? It operates and it moves, it it works with other functions in the body to maybe grab a cup of coffee or run away from a bad person or run towards a lovely person. But also, there's an idea of what the head does in a spiritual ranking, where Jesus, as the head of the church, is far supreme, where there is no other authority above him, and all authority just pales in comparison to this. 
He is the one who controls the destiny of a church that we see in Revelation 2 and 13. Now, I think there are a couple of implications in our local church in thinking about Jesus as the creator, as the sustainer, but also as the head of EMB. Do you see him as the head of this church? Now, my title is lead pastor. So this week, I had to ask myself very hard and very much in a Dear Diary journal, do I see him as the head of my church or do I see me as the head of my church? And if I see me or if I see other people as the power keepers of the church or those are the people who are really in charge, I'm not submitting myself to the loveliness and the power of Jesus Christ. His rank his longevity, his power, his glory far surpasses any, any sense of rank of longevity or money given or knowledge of how things work or how plugged we might be, plugged in we might be. So do we see him as the head of this church when we think about where we want to go, where we've come from, or what we just want to do this fall or maybe next spring or 20 years from now? Are we thinking what would please the head of our body? What, what would cause him joy knowing that he's given his son over to us for the forgiveness of our sins? If first I, not just me personally, if I'm first thinking about what can this do for EMB and I'm not thinking, Jesus, is this your plan for us? Then I'm steering myself away in the same way when we all do things within the church, whether it's visiting a widow or praying for the sick or just volunteering for a kid's third grade class? Are we doing this to please Jesus? And if we're not, then we're not seeing him as the head of the body. As an elder, a pastor, an under-shepherd, I've been searching my own soul in this. Am I leading people towards anything other than Jesus? And if I am, then I'm wrong. Am I leading people with any other authority than Jesus' head? His headship, his Christliness and what he's given me. So we see that Jesus is the head of the church. This is powerful. It is showing his active and sustaining attributes as a leader, but then last in our passage, third thing I want you to recognize that I think Paul wants us to recognize is that Jesus is preeminent. That he is the preeminent, bloodied reconciler. That Jesus, Paul wants us to recognize that Jesus is the preeminent, bloodied reconciler. Colossians 1.18 says that he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. The word beginning here comes with shades of different meaning. It can, it can mean the very beginning, like the start of a football game, or it could also be the, the first person or a thing in the series, the first episode in the series, the origin of an active cause that by which anything begins with. Or it can be the first place, the true principality, the true ruler, the one who holds the office of the magistrate, who administers the law over everyone. He's the one in charge. When we see that Jesus is the beginning, it's because he is eternal, but also because he is the highest ranked. Remember the use of the word firstborn in verse 15, echoing here. It does not necessarily mean that he was first out of many, but refers to his preeminence or him being chief overall. Jesus was not the first person to rise from the dead, but he is the first to rise and never die again. 
and he is declared elsewhere as being the first fruits of the resurrection. We see again and again that this is the person who we place our trust in because if there's anything that we can be certain of, it's that we will die. But the question is, will we rise like the first from the dead? 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says, But in fact, Christ has risen, has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And then it later says in verse 23, But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at the coming those who belong to Christ. The term first fruits hints or shows what we could commonly see as the cream of the crop or the best. You know, I live in a culture, and I mean as like a 30 something year old, where everything is awesome, everything is the best. My wife has like 25 best friends, which is impossible. You only have one best friend. But I say that, knocking her, but I had two best men in my wedding. I just couldn't choose. You're both so great to me. But Jesus sets himself apart and is set apart by God the Father as the one who is the firstborn, as the one who is the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead that in everything, in everything, in all of life and in death, he might be preeminent. So regarding the resurrection of the dead, Jesus is both the, origin and, or the original and acting cause, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He is the active cause of the resurrection, and Christ shall all be made alive, it says in 1 Corinthians 15. By his own resurrection, never to die again, he is the firstborn from the dead, the firstfruits, the preeminent one. So Jesus is the preeminent one, but also we see in verse 19 where all of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Still showing himself to be a personal God, not one who is far off, not one who is able to be overcome by anything, not as someone who can't do something, but he is the person who in him all the fullness of God dwells. Here he's the personal God to use and to himself, or to us and to himself. Jesus is clearly the fullness of the deity of God. We have seen that he is the image of the invisible God, or you've seen that in verse 15, but Paul later declares that Jesus is the whole fullness of the deity that dwells in him bodily. Jesus is God incarnate to us. In him we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. In him we have all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You think about that, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, it says in Colossians 2. In him we are complete. I love uh, Christmas music in general. I don't like new Christmas music, but I love old Christmas music because I feel like it was actually about Christmas. As much as I love Hallmark movies, I I love what old Christmas music says. One of my favorite ones is Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And why I love this so much is because you can sing it all year long. Just like every good song, you can sing all all year long. But written by Charles Wesley in 1739, he writes, Christ by highest heaven adorned, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold Him come, offspring of a virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased with us in flesh to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. So we see that in God's glory, that He shows Himself as preeminent in all of the fullness of God the Father. It was pleasing to him that all of his fullness would dwell in God the Son. But then lastly, in verse 20, we see that God is a reconciler and a bloodied reconciler at that. Look at verse 20, it says, 
and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The Father's desire is to reconcile to himself the things on earth and the things in heaven. And he does that by the death of Jesus on the cross. Now when I say the things on earth, I mean those of which include sinful men, as we would see in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Both Jews and Gentiles. He is bringing people in reconciliation to himself by none other than placing his son on the cross. Because what Jesus does on the cross is he is a substitute for you and I in our sinfulness. He is paying what you and I should have brought on to ourselves. The bloodied, deadly wrath of God. But Jesus stands in our place. And he's the only one who can stand in our place. He's the only person who can stand in our place because he was perfect. Because he was man. Because he's the only one that can rightly absorb the very wrath of God. He's the only one who can be raised from the dead on our behalf. And so what Jesus does is he reconciles the world to himself through the cross of Christ. But he also reconciles to himself the things of heaven. Now this is a difficult phrase. And I'm not going to explain it. But whatever Paul may be alluding here, the point is clear that Jesus is to be the reconciler of all things to God. And when we think about all these things in heaven or on earth, he kind of gave us a little glimpse of that in verses 15 through 17, where he lists a lot of things, principalities and powers, these angelic authorities and these worldly authorities. And what he's trying to show at the first part is he was Lord over all creation. And then within the context of the church, he is still Lord over everything there. And by his work, he will reconcile all things to himself which might sound really encouraging to those of us who are in Christ, and it is really encouraging, but it should be really terrifying to those of you who find yourself not in the firm grip of Christ. Because what is being shown here is that there is a pacification that goes on in the life of the unbeliever as a foretaste of what it will mean to be completely silenced. So for those of you who have kids, what do you do when your kid starts crying? You pacify their mouth. If I'm around your kid and your kid starts crying, what am I going to do? I'm going to grab a pacifier and pop it in his mouth as if to silence him. And what Jesus has said to his people is there will be a time where everyone will fall on their knee and be silenced because they will have nothing to say when they see the true visual preeminence and the glory of God. Now, for the Christian... Our understanding of God reconcile of us is one where he justifies us to the world, to the angels, to other people or other things where he identifies his people when they trust in Christ as their Savior as him. He justifies us. And for those who will be pacified, will face his eternal damnation, separation from him, a terrifying uh, observation of his damnation and wrath. And for those who are in Christ, this justification, like we talked about last week, there will be a hope that is laid up for us in heaven, and that hope will be realized in the glorification of our own lives. Where the things in heaven and things on earth will be reconciled to Christ himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. All peace will be had, whether you are against him or for him. He will make peace, and he shows this by the blood of his cross. 
So through the death of His Son, it's now possible for sinful man to be reconciled to God. So in conclusion, I just want to ask you, who do you think that Jesus is? It's the question that is the most preeminent question of all time. It's something that people have been staggering themselves with for 2,000 years now, but even before Jesus came, they were wondering who the Messiah would be. In biblical times, the Sea of Galilee on this particular night was unusually disturbed and a raging storm had suddenly arisen on the sea. Fearing for their lives, these sailors or disciples were awakened from their sleepiness. And they saw one who calmly rebuked the wind and the sea and reduced the fury of the storm to a peaceful hush. Awestruck, they murmured among themselves, asking the question, who then is this man? But the wind and the seas obey him. When Jesus proceeded to heal the body and forgive the sins of another paralytic man at another time in our scriptures who had been brought to him, the scribes and the Pharisees at the time huddled around themselves and asked the question, who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sin but God alone? As reports of what Jesus has, had done spread throughout the land, news of him finally reached a palace where King Herod sat. Puzzled, he asked, John the Baptist, I have beheaded, but who is this man that people are speaking of? I want you to imagine yourself at a dinner party, maybe at your house or somewhere else, and and you've already talked about politics, and you've already talked about money, which leads the last cycle of things you're not supposed to talk about at a party, religion. And people bring up what they believe, and it's finally your turn to say what you believe. And other people might say that they believe in Jesus, but they might have a different view of Jesus. Maybe they believe in Jesus to save them, but they don't see him as God. Or maybe they see him as powerful, but not actually as their savior. And it becomes time for you to answer their question. And so the question is, who would you say that Jesus is? Who would you tell them? I think what our passage does for us is not only encourage us to fight against our own sin and other temptations outside of us, but rather, but also it allows us to worship Christ in His glory by showing us exactly who He is. He is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. He's the creator of all creation. He's the sustainer of all creation. He alone is the head of the body of the church. And from the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, He stands so that the church has hope in Him. He is the fullness of God so that we can worship Him. And He alone is the reconciler of all things the Savior of our sins by the blood of the cross. I trust that when you look at passages like this, you're not only led to worship, but you're also led to a sense of peace, whereby recognizing what Jesus did for you, you can worship Him for who He is. And I think that's what Paul wants us to do. I trust that our own understanding and appreciation of Jesus will increase in looking at passages like this and be reminded of passages like this. So the question remains, though, have you obeyed Jesus in responding to who He is in your life? Have you trusted in Him as He calls people to respond in Him? Have you placed your trust, your life's trust in Him? And if He hasn't, you have to know that He wants you to. And in fact, He he demands you to. And you're able to. Because provision has been paid by the blood on the cross.
And if you have trusted in Christ, are you obeying Jesus by living a faithful life as his disciple? As the, as the one who is held onto by Christ, are you living in obedience and faith, knowing that when you are in his grip, you are in a good place, as close as you can be to Jesus, you know that is a refuge of faith and hope. So Christian, be faithful unto death, and he will give you the crown of life. He tells us in Revelation 2. Non-Christian, recognize that what Paul says here is true. It was true for them to take refuge in, and it's true for you to place your trust in. I pray that you will respond if you do not believe in Jesus. You can, you should, and he's offering it to you. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you today just grateful at the simple reality of your glorious nature revealed to us in your word. We are amazed. And in fact, it it just staggers our mind to try to think back as far as we can and recognize the beginning. And you keep pushing back the boundaries because you are eternal. May we worship you for this. May we see you as the firstborn of all creation. May we recognize you as the one who made all things through you and for you. Whether invisible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities in our lives, may we see you as the one who created all those things. And may we use them well. May we worship you as we ought. May we recognize you as you are. For in you, all of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. You are a king. You are are our personal savior. And you are the one who came for us and paid the life that we should have paid. So we pray this in the name and the power of your son, Jesus. Amen.